Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about Bruce Lerman's defamation suit, Matt Reif, immigration detention, Sabrina Carpenter versus the Catholic Church and Spotify Wrapped. But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. But before we get into the actual news, what is your personal headline of the week? I am back. I'm back in the studio. I'm back back. in the flesh. I'm back in the flesh. I'm actually so happy. I When I got off the plane yesterday, I was sweaty. I got to Cairns at 4am yesterday morning, 25 degree heat. It was foul and I was like dripping with sweat and I just thought I need to get home. I slept like all of yesterday afternoon and I'm feeling fresh and the weather's great and I'm actually really so happy to be here. I've missed this so much. I've missed having you here. I like I enjoyed the little Zoom experience but the, we, we're giggling again. We're I can see you in again. person. And that's the thing, last week it was like so close yet so far I didn't feel like we had our usual chemistry as others describe it. I, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very thrilled to have you back. What was the best part of Japan? Um, I personally loved Kyoto the best. Oh, actually, the second part is anyone who goes to Japan, if you go to Hiroshima, highly recommend it, but there's this island off Hiroshima called Miyajima. It was probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And also, I don't like exercise. and involved exercise, but I had the best, one of the best days of my my life. So I loved it. I'm feeling fresh, but I'm, I'm happy to be back and here with you. Oh, What's your personal headline? Well, I think I'm just going to stick on this travel theme mm. at the moment. I am so excited planning for New York right now. And when I say, like, I don't, I'm not planning. I've given my friend the task of planning because she was like, I'm pretty chilled at work right now. And I was like, okay, can you just go and book some stuff or like have a look around? She has gone above and beyond. I oh, have love. a very clear Excel spreadsheet on option for morning, option for afternoon, option for evening. Oh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I love it. We then have a separate sheet, places to eat, places to do per borough. And then on Google Maps, she's pinned like 200 places so that if we ever end up somewhere and we look at the maps, we can see what's pinned around us that we've already decided we like. This is incredible and simply the opposite way of how I travel. <laughs> but I love it because I think that you just got to know your travel partner. And right. I, I was talking about this a lot in, in my Instagram stories while I was away. was like my friend and I that, w- that I went with, her name's Lily, we didn't have a single fight. And I was also anticipating mm. in two weeks we're going to have a fight, we're going to have issues. There was no issues. No. And I o- honestly think you just have to have an awareness about what your travel partner is like. And you clearly have that awareness and you're like, I know what I'm getting here. This is great. It's going to be great. I love it. I'm so excited. And it's really funny as well because we're going with Matt and Jack from yes. the Inspired Boys. It's so funny because they are the opposite of that. And I thought the spreadsheets were going to freak them out. And they're like, this is actually lovely. We've oh. never traveled this way. They like, don't have girls to do know anything. how to plan. Yes, like, that's amazing. Well, I'm excited to see on the back end of that how the spreadsheets, how we stick to how it. How it goes. Yeah, me too. All right, let's get into it. The defamation case brought by accused rapist Bruce Lerman against Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson has entered its third week. Here's everything you need to know. So most people will be quite familiar with Bruce Lerman and Brittany Higgins as this has been an unfolding and ongoing matter for multiple years and involves many key politicians and media outlets and it's also just a highly sensitive subject that involves multiple allegations of sexual violence. So I just want to highlight again at the top of the story, it will contain reference to sexual assault. Yeah, okay, so there's so much going on here. How is this different to last year's criminal trial and, like, isn't there another 
criminal trial as well. Yes. So there's a lot going on here. And I think it's really important to make the key distinction between the different cases, especially between the civil and the criminal proceedings. So I'm going to lay out a timeline really quickly to clarify what we're talking about here. So in 2021, Brittany Higgins alleged that Bruce Lerman raped her inside Parliament House in the parliamentary office of Senator Linda Reynolds. And the rape was alleged to have occurred on the 23rd of March, 2019. So two years before that. Last year, a criminal trial was held in the Australian Capital Territory. Lerman pleaded not guilty to one charge of sexual intercourse without consent. He has consistently denied the allegations that any sexual activity occurred. Now, that trial was abandoned in December of 2022 after a week of jury deliberations and a three-week trial. Because one juror brought in two academic papers on sexual assault into the deliberation room. This forced the Chief Justice, of, uh, who was overseeing the trial, Lucy McCallum, to declare a mistrial due to juror misconduct. I believe the jurors were warned by the judge 17 times that they were yeah. not allowed to do that. So this, there was no yeah. questionable nature here. This was absolutely wrong and an amount really, of misconduct. Really dumb. Really dumb. And... Basically, the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, formally announced there would be no retrial and that the charges against Lerman would be withdrawn. So he wasn't acquitted. But it was basically on the basis that a second trial posed an unacceptable risk to Brittany Higgins' health. So it's not that he was found guilty or innocent. It's not that he was acquitted. It was simply that a second trial would not be pursued by the prosecution. That's a really key distinction here. Yeah. The second criminal proceedings that we'll also be quite familiar with, because we've discussed it in the last few episodes of the podcast, is a separate charge Lerman is facing in Queensland. So Bruce Lerman is charged with two counts of raping another woman in October of 2021. Yes, this is what Hannah very much knew and alluded to famously on the podcast. I know everything! (laughs) Yes. So the case has been working its way through early committal proceedings in Toowoomba Magistrates Court since January. He's not been yet committed to stand trial. He remained anonymous until a few weeks ago when Queensland overturned laws that protected the identities of accused sexual offenders until they were committed to stand trial. Mm. So you'll recall Lerman's lawyers attempted to continue protecting his identity by arguing that the impacts of the media on Bruce's mental health would be too too large, basically. And yeah. so they lost this judicial review weeks after the law change, and then it was revealed that he was the man at the centre of the allegation. So these are the criminal proceedings. And there was also another independent inquiry led by former judge Walter Sofronoff into the handling of the case involving Brittany Higgins. Um, and that actually may also result in further investigation because the way that was handled was very questionable. Mm. But we're not actually talking about that today either. So I'm going to ask everyone listening to just put that aside because we're talking about an entirely separate set of proceedings. Yeah. So we're talking about a civil case that has actually been brought by Bruce Lerman himself. His lawyer must be exhausted. Yeah, Stephen Wybrow, actually no, because he just probed Brittany Higgins on the stand for four days straight, but we'll get into that. <sighs> Man's relentless. So, Lerman is suing Network 10 and journalist Lisa Wilkinson for defamation over an interview on the project in which Brittany Higgins detailed her rape allegation in February of 2021. Lerman initially was also suing the ABC and News.com.au, but they have since both settled outside of court. Now... Bruce Lerman was not actually identified in this interview on the project. That's key. But he claims he was identifiable by friends, former colleagues, and many people on social media. And he claims his reputation was utterly destroyed by this interview. This story, it's also important to note, actually wasn't breaking the allegation. There was already an article published that day by news.com.au by Samantha Maiden that actually Mm. broke the story. Now, there are many defences you can use in defamation, and the one that Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson are going to be relying on primarily is the truth defence. Now, 
as you would think that means, essentially what they're going to be arguing is that the claim in the interview is substantially true. Now, I think a lot of people listening will be a bit confused by that because of the criminal trial and how this all feeds in, basically. But what I want to explain here, this isn't being tested by a jury and it won't send Lerman to prison. This defamation suit will see a judge determine on the balance of probabilities whether it was true. So in a criminal case when a person is accused and they might go to prison or face really harsh penalties like that, the burden of proof that needs to be established is beyond reasonable doubt. But in civil proceedings, it's on the balance of probability. So it's what was more likely to have occurred. Interesting. And so that's a lower threshold because we're not determining whether he's guilty on a criminal basis. No, so it's not deciding if he's a criminal. It's it's a reputation fight. And that is, well, that's what defamation is. So can you explain what defamation is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So defamation is essentially the damaging of someone's reputation through a particular method of communication. So a painting could be defamatory, a social media post, an online review. It's really any form of communication that someone sees as damaging to their reputation. Now, this is where this plays into it. And what the outcome here is, is that Bruce is suing for monetary compensation or damages because he believes that the claims within this interview damaged his reputation publicly, right? And to former friends, colleagues as he's saying he was identifiable to them. Now, that's why the threshold is lower because we're not trying to send him to prison here. What we're determining here on the balance of probabilities is whether the allegations contained in that interview were substantially true. Yeah. So if it's found that they are true, then it can't be defamatory because if something is true, it can't be damaging to someone's reputation. That's not the fault of Network 10 and Lisa Wilkins. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people have also been asking on our Instagram account, which is at bigsmalltalk underscore pod, why it is that Bruce Lohman was silent during the criminal trial and is now speaking in court, which is a fair question. Mm. But the answer to that comes back to this civil versus criminal question. So in a criminal case, the accused person has the right to remain silent. But this is a civil case that Lohman himself has launched. So During the criminal trial, Brittany was actually a complainant witness to the prosecution and Bruce remained silent. But Mm. now Brittany Higgins is a witness to the defence, so Network 10's team, and Bruce Lohman is also taking the stand as a witness because he's the person bringing this complaint in court. Yeah, interesting. Can I ask as well, like, what is on the line here then? Is Channel 10 just going to have to give him a huge payout then? Potentially, yeah. And it's like I was reading this morning that Channel 10 have... 20 witnesses they're going to call yeah, on wow. throughout this throughout this trial, including Lisa Wilkinson is yet to testify as well. Mm. But essentially, if the court finds that it was defamatory, then it potentially then becomes a determination of what the value of his reputational damage is and how much they have to pay him to make yeah. up for that, basically. Yeah. yeah. So what's actually happened so far? Yeah. So keep in mind, it's still ongoing. It'll go for another couple of weeks at least. But I'm going to run through some of the key points. Um, one of the pieces of like the most inflammatory pieces of media I've seen in the last few days, which I don't actually think has formally been in court, so I want to establish that before I get into the details of what's unfolded. But one video I saw last week was Bruce it's Bruce Lerman. It's a video of Bruce Lerman that was published by The Australian at an undisclosed time singing a song to the tune of I Fought the Law and Bruce Won. Now, I'm not going to include it in the episode, but I will post it on our social media, so follow us at Big Small Talk underscore pod to see it. That is insane. It is insane. It's absolutely insane. Where was he singing he this? Was in, he looked like he was in a house having like a celebratory drink. There was a plate. He had a drink in hand. Oh, that Very much chills. I know. It does. It really does. Anyway, I just wanted to note that because there's been a lot of inflammatory content and it's really – I think that what we're seeing is just lots of PC sort of media coming out, but I want to some of the like really key details yeah. here and the, and the contradictions that have occurred throughout this trial. Yeah. So 
One of the key points everyone will be across is the Seven Network lying about its interview with Bruce Lerman, which they paid him $130,000 in rent for. They lied to the public and to the Walkley Foundation, which shortlisted them for an excellence award for the piece they produced Whoa. for their, their program Spotlight. Um, during that Spotlight interview, Lerman lied about why he lied to his superior for his reason for returning to Parliament House on the night of the alleged rape. Lerman has admitted to giving three separate accounts of why he returned to his workplace that evening with Brittany Higgins and has acknowledged two of those were lies. Mm. One of the best pieces I have read covering this trial was actually in the Saturday paper. It was a piece by Rick Morton. And I, I just think this sums up so succinctly some of the contradictions and, and key sort of lies that have occurred already. Lerman, through various avenues, has struggled so much with recall that he has changed his story within days of giving evidence in his own defamation trial. Many of these difficulties stem from the changing account of why he decided to go back to Parliament House at 1.48am with Brittany Higgins after a night of drinking at Canberra Bar's The Dock and 88 miles per hour on March 22, 2019. He told parliamentary security that he was there on official business. He told Reynolds' chief of staff, Fiona Brown, he had only come back to drink whiskey. He told the Australian Federal Police, however, there was no alcohol in his office, even though there was. He did not correct this error afterwards, including at the criminal trial. Lerman has also claimed he went to collect his house keys. In another version, he claimed he actually did go back to do work and that he needed to mark up question time briefs because he had heard politically significant information about the French submarine contract while drinking that night. So essentially, Bruce has failed to recollect memories, he's contradicted himself at multiple points, and he's been caught lying on several matters. Not just his reasoning for returning to Parliament House on the night of the alleged assault, he also claimed he didn't buy Britney a drink that night at the bar, the dock. CCTV footage actually disproved that. So there's just a lot of of bare bones failures in his facts and his recollection. Mm. I also was listening to the 7am podcast about this story and Rick Morton was speaking to these facts again. And he said also there was at one point um, when Bruce was provided a show cause letter, basically he was being threatened with termination because of returning to work after these hours and it was, a, it was serious misconduct. He ignored his boss's phone calls and then claimed that he was outside of Canberra. When he was asked in court where he was, he said he was dealing with a family health issue. Um, his mother was sick in Queensland. Queensland. They said, so were you in Queensland? He said, no. It's actually insane just how many different versions of events. I like, know. And I know I'm just recalling a lot of facts, but I think that there's so much to unpack here that the media simply isn't talking about, yeah. right? But how do you find what actually happened if he's giving 57 different versions of the event? Like, Absolutely. It's impossible to know. It then. is impossible. And I also think it's really important to identify that this is a case Bruce Lerman himself has brought. Yeah. He has placed himself in this position and entirely contradicted himself when it's entirely in his control to be pursuing these legal recourses, you mm. know? Really what Bruce Lerman's lawyer has focused on is undermining her allegation and saying that she tried to protect her own job by making this police complaint and alleging that she was sexually assaulted. It's also come out during her cross-examination that she received a $1.9 million personal injury payout from the Commonwealth during all of these processes. Mm. I was I was just thinking as well, you know, Brittany has then been cross-examined for the next four days. Now, four days is a very long time to sit in a witness box and Huge. be probed. And, you know, I, I believe it was the Network 10 lawyers called it, like, oppressive, the length of time she was expected to sit in there and be probed and 
Essentially, the goal of Lerman's lawyer, Stephen Wybrow, was to attempt yet again to undermine her and her credibility and her claim that she was raped inside of Parliament House that night. But also, if you're probing someone for that long and, that, like, you're waiting, for, you're just waiting for a slip-up, you'll keep going until she says something that gives you something to bite on. Absolutely. It's a tactic, right? Absolutely. And I know this is quite graphic, but, like, I was reading so many articles about part, like, because you can actually watch this live stream. The whole cross-examination, the entire trial is being live streamed. So I've been watching some of it and reading a lot of it. And there was things like they forced her in court to draw where her head and where her legs were on the lounge that she claimed she was sexually assaulted on. Uh, Key parts of the questioning include trying to catch her out on whether she was found completely naked or with her dress above her waist bunched up. Um, Another part was the claim again, yet again, that was repeated throughout the criminal trial was that she has made this complaint of sexual assault to avoid losing her job. And to that, really, the response is, why did she go public then? She could have just told her bosses. Like, I think Mm. there's some really key arguments that are coming up again and again. But also the irony of pulling her up or trying to make such a main point of your argument finer details. Yeah. When Bruce is just proving he can't remember a single detail. It's it's such a double standard. And she is just having her credibility and reputation undermined consistently to the point where they're just saying she has made up this claim entirely and put herself through years and years of court processes and trauma in order to keep her job, which she now no longer has anyway. Like, Mm. it's really... It's disturbing to watch, frankly. I I literally read her quote um, when she was questioned about the dress and she said... As I was being raped, it wasn't my primary concern where my dress was. I was deeply more concerned about the penis in my vagina that I didn't want than I was about my dress. I realised that in those moments of trauma, my memory wasn't perfect. Like, she's really delivering back Mm -hmm. some significant dialogue that's just not being reported on in the press as well because this is the stuff that needs to be spoken about. I also want to highlight, like, the media coverage imbalance in these stories because obviously, like, the the Brittany Higgins trial is what that criminal trial was labelled overtly by most media outlets. I last night googled both Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lerman. When I googled Brittany Higgins, the top two articles that came up were Higgins reveals huge compo payout and Brittany Higgins, her bumble date and the line between perception and reality. When I googled Bruce Lerman, the top two articles that came up were Higgins, cash and the secret tape And then Higgins denies trying to blow up retrial of Lerman prosecution. So even in circumstances where Bruce Lerman is the person that's bringing a defamation suit and he has been caught in multiple lies regarding his account of the details of that night, when you search his name, the top five to ten articles that come up revolve entirely around Brittany Higgins and Mm. the media trying to place blame on her. Even though this is not her case, she is simply a witness for the defence. She is entirely probed and the focus remains entirely on the alleged victim victim of a sexual assault. Yeah. And I think that says everything. And I think that when I'm looking at this case and looking at the way these individuals have been cross-examined, what comes to mind is the fact that I, I completely agree with the right to silence that accused perpetrators have in criminal trials. I'm not disputing that. But I think that when we step back from this case and the series of proceedings that have occurred, what is the purpose of this? Because the only time Bruce Lerman has been heard and his side of the story has been tested is in the media the media that he claims has utterly destroyed his reputation, yet he has entirely profited from. And went straight to. Yes. And then in civil proceedings for defamation, which he has brought, and then he has undermined his own reputation. Bruce Lerman has caused more reputational damage to Bruce Lerman than anyone else. (laughs) And so for me, looking at this and looking at the media coverage, I think it is disgusting and appalling. But I also think, what is justice here? And what are we actually trying to seek in terms of an outcome? Because if defamation and civil proceedings, which usually are used by 
by perpetrators to try and silence complainants and silence survivors and scare them off. What are we testing here and what is our legal system trying to do? I think that we just need to look back and think, what is justice and what are we trying to achieve here? Sabrina Carpenter has kicked it up a notch since her last public feud, this time taking on the Catholic Church. Ooh, I love this. Okay, so it started on October 31st when Sabrina released a new video clip for her song, Feather. I love that song, by the way. I'm also just realising that 31st is... Halloween. So that makes the story even funnier. But if you haven't seen the video clip, it starts with her walking down the street and then this like group of creepy boys start following her and like checking her out. And then all the boys get hit by a bus. And then in the next scene, she's in the gym and all these boys are checking her out. And then like they start turning on each other and then they all murder each other. And she's just like, whatever, and continues. And then the Next scene is like someone in an elevator and she like traps his tie after he checks her out and goes up and dies in the elevator. And then the final scene is she's in a church and she's in this Brooklyn's Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church. She starts dancing around in this like mini little chill dress. There's a bunch of pastel coffins, assuming that they have the creepy men all dead inside of them. And one of the coffins say like, RIP bitch. Now... As you can imagine, this is all a bit too much for the Catholic Church. <laughs> like, in a statement released a few days after the video's release, the head bishop wrote that he was appalled by the display of blood and sexiness and incensed that the policy was not properly followed when the church okayed this production. And then the church's pastor, who was the guy that would have okayed this, was then fired. And the pastor then issued an apology letter saying that his parish didn't know of the video's content when they approved this filming. And then the bishop, the guy who fired the pastor, who was appalled, went into the church and, like, performed a special mass of reparation to re-sanctify the church and pretty much cleanse it of Sabrina. Oh, my God. So it's pretty dramatic. Like, it's caused a lot of uproar. And then Variety was interviewing Sabrina and they were like, how do you feel about scandalising the Catholic Church? Any thoughts on this? And she, dead set, tells Variety, Jesus was a carpenter. I can't. Which, it's a good joke. It's, it's a, a good, it's joke. A good joke. I mean, I can see why it would be so offensive. Like, I went to a Catholic primary school. I used to go to church on the weekends back when I was younger. If you're religious, that is very... That's a lot. But they they did get the approvals. They did get the approvals. But, like, even I... And, like, I'm not... I wouldn't call myself religious at all now. But, like, her posing up against the tabernacle, like, which is where (laughs) they keep, like, the body of Christ in there. She's, like, she's up against, like, posing. Even I was, like, oh, my God, she is unbothered. Oh, my God. She is unbothered. And I also think that they would have known that this would have got this backlash, obviously, considering that she actually won an award at the Variety show thing this week. And, like, one of the first things she did was thank her lawyer. Oh. (laughs) Which I thought was interesting. I'm kind of obsessed with the attitude. I know. But I do feel bad for the guy that was fired if he genuinely didn't know that that was what was going to be in it. Like, because I feel like a lot of music videos get filmed in churches and they're probably expecting it to be just, like, I don't know, just, like, a, a little choir scene or something like that. Yes. I have no idea. But I also reckon that this has been a pretty genius PR move from her because I think it's like, um, and they call it like the don't look strategy 
in PR where it's like it causes so much chaos that people then search for it and love it and it, all it does is improve it all. I also think this isn't surprising for Sabrina's marketing tactics considering she's very much positioning herself, I would say, as like a little a little bit Ariana Grande-esque in like super overtly sexy and like her nonsense outros get a lot of media attention as yes. well. And it it's she tries to ham it up every single time. So this just feels like the ultimate scandal the thing u- to do. The ultimate inflammation. Like, and it's work because I'm going to go watch this now. It's, I have to say, I think the way I described that music video made it sound a lot better than it is. But, oh. <laughs> but it's still, still good. She looks scandal. great. Scandal. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Last month, the High Court ruled that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful. Now, the federal government is attempting to re-detain those that were released. So if you listened to our episode on the High Court ruling a few weeks ago, you'll remember we took you through the overturning of a two-decade-long precedent that gave power to the federal government to detain refugees for indefinite periods of time. At the crux of what the High Court decided was that indefinite detention is not a matter for the government to make decisions on because they aren't able to punish people. That Mm. is the role of the courts. Mm. So that decision resulted in the release of 140 people who were being detained. Now, there was a massive outcry from the coalition over this because some of these people have criminal records. I want to clarify that they have served their time for the crimes they committed. Mm. The reason most of them are being held on this ongoing basis was because they couldn't be deported. They were Many were considered stateless. If you want more of a deep dive on the background of the case and the precedent that existed for 20 years before it, go back to our episode from the 14th of November. Yeah, there was a lot in it. It's, when, as soon as I saw this follow-up, I was like, I we don't have time to explain No, there's no way to do it again because it's so long and so complicated. But the crux of it really is, is that the constitution outlines that they cannot give punishment yeah. and keeping people detained for an indefinite period of time as refugees, as asylum seekers, that is punishment. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's pretty clear cut, you yeah. know. Um, <laughs> Actually, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, since those 140 people were released, two have reoffended and one other has failed to meet the strict reporting requirements that the Labor government rapidly introduced after these detainees were allowed into the community. Think of the reporting requirements like parole. Some include like ankle monitors to track their location and just like reporting obligations for turning up to specific locations to announcing they're there, basically. So what were the offences committed? So one was committed in South Australia and that was by a 65-year-old man who was charged with two counts of indecent assault. The other was in New South Wales in relation to a 45-year-old man who was charged with the possession of illicit substance, which I believe to be cannabis. Mm. Now, what I really want to focus on today, though, is that the Albanese government is introducing a amendments to allow courts to order the detention of some people who were released as a result of the High Court's ruling. So how how is that possible? How would that work? So this reform would see the immigration minister be able to apply to state supreme courts for a community safety order for the detention or the supervision of adults released as a result of this particular case. So a community safety order would put a non-citizen in prison, which would see them detained for a maximum of three years. So the court would have to reintroduce them and re-decide, um, but they don't have to release them at the conclusion of that order and it's reviewed on a yearly basis. And also, this isn't them going back to immigration detention. This is them going to prison for crimes they have not yet committed. Or crimes they've served already. Well, they're not going back to prison for the crime they committed. They're going back to prison because they allegedly pose a risk to the community to commit an offence again. Right. That's essentially it. And there's also another order that could be applied here, which is a supervision order, which would allow them to live in the community but be subject to a series of conditions, which could include things like curfews, not being allowed to get a licence, having to live in particular locations, not being able to leave the state. 
So these are very serious proposals for people that have not yet committed a crime. Now, the proposal, this is notable, the proposal would only apply to people who have been convicted of a serious violent or sexual offence that was punishable by seven or more years in prison. So The Guardian has a fantastic explainer that they released two days ago breaking this down. But essentially, one of the aspects I was reading about was like the question of whether this is even legal. And basically, the government is refusing to release or speak about advice from the Solicitor General about the level of constitutional risk involved in this proposal. They're basically mirroring counterterrorism laws, though. So there are existing laws like this, but they're designed to prevent terrorists from committing offences. So if there's reasonable suspicion that someone's about to commit an act of terror, right. they can be imprisoned before that act is committed. So slightly different, Mm. I would argue. Yes, I would. Yes. These laws have already been passed in the Senate and the bill will now be voted on in the House of Representatives this Thursday. So MPs are going back to Canberra before the summer break just to vote on this bill, basically. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this because I think that when people hear convicted criminals especially when it comes to like violent and sexual offences, obviously people feel like they pose a risk to the community. Mm. But one of the things I want to talk about here is the existence of the presumption of innocence. Because I think that when it comes to people like Bruce Lerman, a lot of people in the media argue hard for the presumption of innocence and the belief that innocent until proven guilty, innocent until court processes. Yeah. Suddenly, when it comes to refugees, when it comes to people that may not be white, upper class, the argument changes. Mm. Now we can imprison people that haven't actually committed a crime. And I think it's the way that we perceive different people and prospective offences and that's the way that our social viewpoint changes in relation to what those people deserve and their rights. It's really interesting. I, I think it's a difficult point to stomach, but I think it's an important one because these people have been granted access into our community. They've been allowed, and they should. The High Court has decided. And our government is actively working to prospectively and preventively detain them again. I think it's really interesting who the government chooses to sort of inflame in the media as to a risk to the community. So youth offenders and refugee offences seem to be things that are pushed by both Labor and the coalition as like a danger to the community. Yeah. When I, I think we know actively that, you know, there are a lot of convicted criminals that have been released from prison that no one's talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think the idea of the fact that these people have served their time means they should be allowed into the community. Yes, there is a risk. Of course there's a risk. There's a risk of anyone committing an offence. But the, the sort of danger and risk factor we place on different people, I would say there's an, a huge racial bias here. And I think it's important to talk about and highlight it. And I also think that the speed at which this legislation is being dealt with points to the fact that governments have the ability to change laws quickly. And, and prioritise. And they only choose to do it to certain people in certain circumstances, and this is one of them. Yeah. And what does that say about us? It genuinely is undermining the presumption of innocence and the rule of law. And I think we're picking and choosing who those things apply to. Comedian Matt Reif is out here proving that the failed comedian to right-wing guy is a fierce and inevitable pipeline. (laughs) Okay, so you may have seen the name Matt Reif floating around this week. So Matt is a US comedian who on November 15th had his very own Netflix comedy special released called Natural Selection. As the very first joke of the show, he tells a story about how he was in a restaurant with a friend and they noticed that their female waitress had a black eye. And then him and his friend started to wonder, why is she on front desk? Why is she, why have they not put her, like, kind of put her behind or in the kitchen or something so people wouldn't see that? And then he jokes, but I feel like if she could cook, she wouldn't have that black eye. And then he goes, 
That was just testing the waters, seeing if y'all are going to be fun or not. I figure if we start the show with domestic violence, the rest of the show should be smooth sailing. He then goes on, Of course I felt bad for her. She should have had her protection crystals. You know what I mean? Before going on about a lengthy bit about crystal girls and girls who blame astrology for their poor decision-making skills. Now, as expected, when this special was released, that joke and really the whole special in general, generated a lot of backlash. And you kind of thought, okay, let's gear up for another apology video. You know, we've seen plenty of those this year. This guy's getting a lot of heat. That joke clearly did not land. Instead, Matt posts a mock apology video and he writes, if you've ever been offended by a joke I've told, here's a link to my official apology. And then it had like tap to solve the issue next to a link. When tapped, the link brought followers to a health website where they could purchase special needs helmets. (laughs) To no surprise, that joke didn't exactly land either. It also just added like a whole special needs mocking layer that was entirely unnecessary and also not funny. And I find all of this really strange because I personally love stand-up comedy. Like my whole TikTok feed is stand-up comedy. My whole Instagram reels is stand-up comedy. I have pretty much devoured every special there is to watch on Netflix. And so I actually did vaguely know of Matt before this controversy. And he originally blew up on TikTok for being like a hot comedian. And he sort of like, I guess he is conventionally like a pretty boy. Not for me personally, but <laughs> like he's a pretty boy. So his audience was very much female based. Girls loved him. So when I read this joke, I just thought, wow, that is so out of touch for your main audience. Yeah. Like your audience is is predominantly female. Yeah. And it's purposeful. And the bits that have done the best for him, like the ones that blew up was him like kind of flirting with mothers in the crowd or like talking about a guy on a date. He played into that audience entirely. And then when I was reading more about this, I found this really curious article he did with Variety earlier this year about this upcoming show. And it kind of proves that he was actually well aware of that. And he said, one of the biggest misconceptions of things I get ridiculed online for is people are like, oh, he only has a female fan base. But when you come to my shows, I mean, it's 50-50. It's couples coming out. It's groups of dudes who are coming. And that's the one thing that I wanted to tackle in this special was showing people that like, despite what you think about me online, I don't pander my career to women. As if that's something embarrassing almost. A hundred percent. I also find it interesting that This is not even, like, the first controversy sort of thing he's had surrounding dumb, insulting comments. Like, back in Feb, he appeared on a podcast called The Stiff Socks Podcast. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Where he mocked women with giant clits, saying it's like God left a tag on you. Then when interviewed by the New York Times about that comment, he said, you're mad at somebody that's just trying to make you laugh? That's such an insane concept to me. Now, Matt has also said in past interviews that he isn't worried about offending people and described what he called like a sensitivity rumour. And that is the idea that comedians need to watch what they say now and, 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 you know, comedians can't get away with just saying whatever they want anymore. He then doubled down after all of this controversy came out on the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. I I saw this. (laughs) And he defended himself on it and he bragged on the podcast that he has now gained more followers because of the domestic violence joke than he has lost, but also insists that he is finished with the crowd work that made him so popular with women. So that just kind of makes me feel like this was all actually really carefully orchestrated to 
rid himself of this female fan base and become sort of like a hero, this like edgy comedian, I want men to like me. Yes. Like that's kind that's really all this is, is like how do I go so extreme so that guys in my corner will be like, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. Take a joke. It's actually embarrassing. And I guess that's what has been like a big part of this conversation. Like, is it okay to say whatever you want just because it's comedy? Now, personally, I think that stand-up comedy, and this could be a controversial take, but I think it is meant to be offensive in some sort of way. What I love about stand-up comedy is that it has the ability to make people feel uncomfortable and do it in a clever way. Like, they're, like it's so clever that comedians are able to use laughter to actually shine light on really complex social issues. And I love that it, comedy has the ability to make people keep people accountable and call people out on their shit in a really funny way. And I'm sort of of the belief that you can get away with jokes sometimes if they are funnier than they are offensive. When I say offensive, I do mean in the sense that you're pushing a wound at the source. You are trying to make a point that is in a broader social context. And I actually think that's really clever. I actually completely agree with you. I think a lot of people would expect us to be like just very angry about this, but I am also a big stand-up comedy consumer mm. and one of the things I, I really fundamentally believe is that you can joke about pretty much everything but it's the way in which you do it and I think what the failure for Matt Reif is is that he's actually not good. No and this is what I mean it's good stand-up comedy is able to walk that fine line well and that people I love are like and I'm sure these people have controversies around them too but like specials I've watched and enjoyed is like Nikki Glaser, Michelle Wolf, Ricky Gervais, Dave Chappelle, I think they strive to make a point with their comedy and that's what made their specials well. In saying that, none of that applies to Matt Reif or his special because it wasn't clever. It wasn't playing into a bigger picture or shedding light on anything. It was cheap. It was a cheap shot and it isn't funny and it's dumb to neglect your main audience. I agree because I think that the the art of stand-up comedy is finding a taboo subject or something exactly as you said, which is a complex social issues and being able to handhold your audience and walk them through the minefield without actually stepping on anything. Yes. It's about addressing the concept. It's about addressing the fact that you and I both agree that this is bad and here's how we make some complicated jokes about it. And that's what makes it sophisticated humour. A hundred percent. What he has done is not attack it at the source. Exactly what you said. He hasn't attacked it at the source. He has decided to do the cheap shot. And the it's audience, not layered. You know, you know what I think the core of it is? The audience he's trying to get the laugh from are the people that would give a woman a black eye. That's what I think the problem is. And that's yeah. why it's deeply offensive and unfunny. And that's the that's my whole take on it. Well, it actually the story gets more ridiculous somehow because his whole crux in his argument of defense here is like, I don't care about offending people. Here's your special needs helmet. Go take a joke. Now, in that same week, he then proved that he can't take a joke. Yeah, classic. If you missed it, so there's this plastic surgeon that's really popular on TikTok and he made a video which said, me creating the greatest jawline ever seen just for my client to get cancelled right after. Now, this surgeon does not follow Matt Reif. He does not really have any association with Matt Reif. But Matt Reif started getting tagged in the comments as a joke because he obviously is someone with a, a noticeable jawline that got cancelled that week. It was a pretty obvious joke to make. And so he was getting tagged in the comments. Matt then commented, he didn't laugh, he didn't make a joke back. He said, lying about medical history is illegal, FYI. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the problem, is that the very people that push this narrative of like, no one take can laugh, take a joke, are the people that are so wounded. He's literally what, threatening something in the comments, not making a funny joke back. 
The plastic surgeon then felt so bad afterwards that he sent Matt an apology package. What was in it, you ask? <laughs> a helmet. Oh. <laughs> that said artificial selection on the side with an extra large chin strap. Fuck off. That's so good. Because if he protects it for the next six to eight weeks, then maybe he will be able to take something on the chin. Some people (laughs) are truly a gift from above. That is brilliant. I love that. Yeah. A ridiculous story through and through. And I love that what's getting, if you look up Matt Reif, it's all this plastic surgeon stuff now. Yes. Which is so good. So good. Happy Spotify wrapped to all that celebrate. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you celebrate. I don't. I'm humiliated. <laughs> okay, so Spotify wrapped happened last week. And, you know, I love that it gives us a bunch of really startling personal statistics from like how many minutes we spent listening to tunes this year to what artists managed to like sneak into our top five and humiliate us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But before we get into the personal, what I actually wanted to look at was the Spotify wrapped overall. Yep. Because I thought it was really interesting that actually only in recent years we've seen the introduction of women in the most streamed artist. So for 2013, 2015, 2017, 2018 and 2020, not one woman made it into the top five streamed artists globally. That's fucked. I didn't know that. Let that sink in. That's pretty huge. So what was great about this year, what was interesting about this year is that to no one's surprise... Taylor Swift took out the title for the most streamed artist globally, beating out Bad Bunny, The Weeknd, Drake. And this also makes her the first woman to be the number one globally since Spotify Wrapped was introduced. Wasn't it something like 26 billion streams altogether? Insane. Yeah. It was an insane amount. Also, the most streamed song of 2023 was Miley Cyrus' Flowers with 1.6 billion global streams since January 1st. Holy shit. Yes. It's a good song. Didn't think it was that great a song. But they I... actually are my number one and two. Really? Yeah. Miley Cyrus was your second. Yeah. And but Jaded was my top song. I didn't like Flowers. That's my <laughs> that's my hot take. Jaded was my most listened to song of last year. Wow. Oh, this year. Sorry. Also, shout out to SZA who cleaned up with Kill Bill being the second most streamed song and her album SOS ranking third in the most streamed global albums. So I just it really is the year of the fucking girl. It, Go off, queen. I, I think it's also a pretty incredible leap from past years, especially considering that this is still such a male-dominated industry. Like, I read a stat the other day that only 12% of songwriters are female. Really? 12%. This is Sarah, this is insane. We uh, Do you work for the Australian Bureau of Statistics? You should, because these are really good stats. How about podcasts? Is it, is it us? Uh, yes. So, globally streamed was Big Small Talk, despite under 20 episodes. <laughs> and despite yeah. being very Australian-based a lot of the time. We actually did, for, and thank you everyone, because we did actually get uh, mention in the wrapped with the Oz and New Zealand for a creator breakout for yeah. 2023. We were sixth. We were sixth in the top 10 breakout creators for 2023. Thank you, Spotify. Insane. But Joe Rogan took out the top spot as predicted, followed by Call Her Daddy. So no massive surprises there. But can I also shout out, so we have a friend, Gemma, who runs the Psychology of Your 20s podcast, and she is an Australian girl, and her podcast ranked 19 globally. That's insane. Globally. That is insane. Yes, I have watched Gemma in this studio. She comes into the studio, yeah. and I'm just like, you, you are go a superstar. Other fun stats I wanted to go through from this rap data. In Oz, the Wiggles were the most streamed local artists, while... <laughs> 
Riptide by Vans Joy once again taking number one for Australia's most streamed local artist song. Will we ever get anything new? We will never top. I love it. I actually love love Riptide. I love it. I'm contributing to that statistic. Also, 200,000 playlists were made with the word breakup in the title this year, which were streamed the most on Valentine's Day. These stats, I'm telling (laughs) you, what the fuck? (laughs) The most common tracks on this playlist were We Are Never Getting Back Together, Thank You Next, Before He Cheats, and Someone Like You. They're actually terrible. They're just classic (laughs) breakup songs. Can you make a breakup album and not include those songs? Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? God, people really went through it. People went through it on Valentine's Day. Sorry, quick note before we get back to your excellent statistics. <laughs> I didn't like this year that it gave you like your peak month for listening to particular artists. Oh, I know. Because then you're like, oh, I really went through it in March. Yeah, like, yeah. fucking I'm hell. Seeing it like, yeah. Oh, May was rough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, following the release of the TV show Succession, the finale, the theme song spiked over 350% People on Spotify. People are embarrassing and predictable. I put that song in playlist. That song is so... Did you watch Succession? I didn't even watch Succession. I was like, that is a fun tune. I know. I have it too on my Spotify. Okay, my last statistic. In September, there was a 580% increase in playlists related to the Roman Empire. 75% created by men. The most popular songs on them were Viva La Vida and Everybody Wants to Rule the World. What's interesting is that the spike, because it's like, who was making Roman Empire playlists before this year? No, but uh, that was a big thing in this, was like trends predicted a lot of playlists. Girl Dinner became a popular playlist. Tomato Girl became a popular playlist. Barbie-related stuff was really popular. It all kind of correlated to trends. This is okay. This is such a weird flex, but when I was 19, I wrote a piece for the New York Times and I included a, a Spotify playlist that was like my Australian music Spotify playlist. They put it in the article. <laughs> so, one of my Spotify playlists that's just Australian music is in an article on the New York Times website. It's like the coolest thing to ever happen to me. Respectfully, what was I doing in 19 <laughs> while you were writing for the New York Times? I don't know why they published it. It's so bad. That is so anyway, good. Anyway, so yeah, I got I got 80 likes on that playlist. Huge wow. thanks, NYT. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I really, I enjoy the Spotify wrapped. I don't personally feel the need to share it to my own socials, but I enjoy the little like walk through it. Yeah, I don't, I couldn't personally bring myself to share mine on socials. Actually, a few of my friends were like, post it. And I was like, it's not actually the artist. It's the top five songs. Besides Jada by Miley Cyrus, they're humiliating. I will never reveal them. I thought mine was pretty funny. It was a TikTok song. Um, escapism, but oh, the sped up version. That was mine. That, Sarah, was your top song? No, that was second. That's why I didn't share it because I was embarrassed. Oh, I thought that was hilarious. What? Do we, are we the same? That I was the escapism, the sped escapism up version. Sped up second. And it's right because I went through a phase where I just listened to nothing but that. I know. Every time I got ready for a night out, it was escapism. My girl, like my friend group, became obsessed with that song. I know, same. But not, my, sorry, my friend group didn't. I was just listening to it alone. <laughs> but the thing about that song is, I'm embarrassed by it because it's so the opposite of my personality that I feel like. I'm like it makes it's one of those. Do you, you know, know what my favorite thing like, about that song is? It's such a bop. You feel so sexy listening yep. to it, and then you listen to the lyrics, and you're like, "This is the saddest song I've ever." I know, to. but also, can, not, can we just cancel out the standard speed version? No, it's I don't. So want to bad, to that. only. But yeah, I, I was. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that was mine. <laughs> I'm like, it's humiliating. Sarah's like, this is mine. I'm like, same. <laughs> I love it. All right, we are at our Q&A section for this week. Thank you, everyone, who sent in. Thank you, everyone, who contributed to the Q&A we did on our Instagram. If you do have any thoughts, feelings, feedback, stories you want us to cover or discuss, please send in on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. But this week, 
was sent in by Jen and it says, any thoughts on the Oxford word of the year? Do you know what it is? Riz. 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 Oxford word of the year is Riz. That's ridiculous. I think it's pretty funny. For people who aren't Generation Z like the two of us, Riz refers to, it's like a shortened version of charisma. Yeah. And it's essentially saying if you have Riz, you have game. Yeah. You're charming, you're suave, you're all of these things. Yeah. It's just, you've you've got it. You've got a sparkle about you. Yeah. You've got a bit of Riz. Usually it's used if like a guy's pretty smooth with you. Yeah. Do you use the word Riz in your everyday? Not in a serious sense. I was about to say, it's got to be ironic, right? It's an ironic. But then is it like queen or slave where it comes in naturally and starts being used seriously? It hasn't done that yet. It doesn't roll off the tongue for me. I still giggle when I hear it. I think you have Riz. (gasps) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I think you have Riz. Thank you. I think we have different kinds of Riz, but I actually have full faith in the fact that we both have Riz. I think we're both... Is there a difference between just like unbridled confidence and charisma though. (laughs) I think we have both. (laughs) I also had a look at what the other shortlisted finalists that missed out on this top spot. One is prompt, which I assume is to do with AI and like putting in prompts. It also could be dating app prompts. Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Interesting. Situationship. Fair. But that is one that I do genuinely use. That it, is absolutely that is a word to me now. It is, it is a word that has genuinely overtaken the vernacular and the vocabulary we use around relationships. Like yeah. I think I would use the word situationship more frequently this year than I would use the word relationship. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Swifty. Yep. Beige flag. Love. And if anyone doesn't know, that's <laughs> love. I would. I used to say orange flag and then I've been changed by the beige. So a beige flag is something that is kind of like a working towards a red. You're not sure. It's definitely not green. It's definitely not red. And you're just like, it could go either way on this one. Well, this is controversial because well. that actually the definition they've given here disagrees with that. It says a character trait that indicates that a partner or potential partner is boring or lacks originality. He's a bit beige. Oh, so maybe orange flag still stands. Orange flag, I think, exists in its own right. Beige is like he's a bit vanilla. Hey, everyone, you learn something new every day. And <laughs> I've just learned it live. Another one, de-influencing. Yep, like that. I really like that. Heat dome. What's that? That's not to do with Gen Z slang. So we're like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a persistent high-pressure weather system over a particular geographic area, which traps a mass of hot air below it. Take me back to slay. Take me back. <laughs> and then the last one that was shortlisted was parasocial. Yep, I like that. I like that one too. Yeah, and parasocial refers to I'm I'm just guessing here. I could I'm riffing. I could be <laughs> wrong again. A parasocial relationship is really the the sort of gap between what your understanding of someone you're viewing and experiencing online is. Yeah, it's like if you have a parasocial relationship with an influencer, yeah. you feel like you know them but you don't actually. It's also the same as people who like you maybe knew from school or 15 years ago that you don't actually speak to but you watch their life, you know? Like it's parasocial. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening again this week. Please message us, follow on bigsmalltalk underscore pod on Instagram. And then also feel free to follow, tap the banner, rate five stars, leave a comment. It's exhausting trying to list this off every week. Shameless. See you next Tuesday. (laughs) Bye.